of the scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's my pleasure this morning to greet you all and uh, let you know that Reuben and Judy Johnson and Esther Guza and Dale and Joanne Batdorf are doing well and think of us and pray for us. We were able to see them last week sometime between the earthquake and the hurricane. And they're doing well. Turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we'll read uh, the first 11 verses of this together. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the dark day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If there is a God, why doesn't he just make himself known? I mean, if God exists, why does he seem so concealed and covert Why can't he just show up for everyone to see? I mean, think about it. It's all too easy to go through life without any awareness whatsoever of the presence of God in the world. People do it all the time. I do it sometimes. I'm sure you do too. This great and awesome, holy and majestic God that we talk about, this God that we worship, where is he? We can't see him. And then when we see all the bad things that happen in this world, it can be hard to believe that some benevolent and just God really is ruling over everything that happens. The natural laws of cause and effect that the scientists study, they do do a pretty good job of accounting for most of what happens in our everyday lives. The, The meteorologists could track Hurricane Irene from when it was just a tropical depression in the South Atlantic. There was no need to invoke the hand of God to explain what was happening. I mean, God, if there is one, he seems to stay pretty much out of sight. I may have got things going in the beginning, perhaps setting up this vast cosmos somehow, but he's nowhere to be seen now. We can get along in life without thinking about God at all. I think this way of thinking is pretty common in our day, isn't it? I liken it to what might be going on in the imaginary minds of the characters of a play. 
There's an internal uh, coherence about the world they inhabit on stage. They play their parts with an apparent uh, freedom unencumbered by any forces outside that world. Hamlet will act like Hamlet without ever imagining the existence of Shakespeare. So it is in the human drama of which we're all a part. We can perform our roles totally oblivious to the playwright's guiding hand. As I said, people do it all the time. But there's something in human experience that longs to know. Is this world of space and time that we inhabit, this world of atoms and molecules stuck together through various chemical reactions, this world of birth and death, this human drama that is both comedy and tragedy, is what we see on this stage all there is? Or is there something, or better, someone, who stands outside all of this? Someone who's directing the action according to some larger plot, someone whose design somehow gives meaning to the whole. Well, the message of the Bible, of course, is that there is someone. This world is not independent, autonomous, self-existent. It was created by God. And we as human beings were made uniquely in His image so that we might live in relationship with this personal God. We are created to know Him and to love Him. But something went wrong. We human beings refuse to live before this good and gracious God as his humble and obedient children. Instead, we, we wanted to put ourselves in his place, to make ourselves this, the sovereign rulers of this world. And as a result, the Bible tells us we were cast from God's presence and entered into a world spoiled by sin, a dark world in which God became a kind of distant memory. And that darkness was both mental and moral. The eyes of our minds were blinded to the presence of God and we groped around in the darkness with our various religions and philosophies trying to understand who we are and why we exist. And the desires of our hearts were darkened too. In fear and in pride, we look to other gods of false idols like sex and power and fame as the source of our security and significance and meaning for life. And we deceive ourselves with the prideful assertions of our own uh, enlightenment. Human reason is enthroned as a great beacon of light and we foolishly believe that, that this glorious new age is just around the corner. But then some grand event like the Jewish Holocaust of World War II, or maybe just some small failures in our own lives, come as a stark demonstration that we humans still wander in the night. And the human drama remains a tragedy. But the Bible, you see, affirms that God has not left himself without a witness in this world. He's not abandoned this world. He has spoken through the prophets who declared that one day he would make himself known in the world. Unmistakably. He would appear to set things right in his fallen creation. He would act in mercy toward his people and he would bring his righteous judgment to bear on a world that has turned its back on him. The God who created this world with a purpose will bring that purpose to completion. The God who made us morally responsible will see that we are morally accountable. The Bible tells us that the Lord himself will have his day. The day of the Lord. 
And that day is coming, the prophets proclaimed. The day of the Lord, when the Lord himself would no longer hide his glory and majesty from us, but will reveal it in all its horrifying holiness. That day when his kingdom is realized, that day when God's righteousness will rule and all sin and evil will be done away with, the divine playwright himself will burst on the stage to make himself known and set things right in this world that he has created. Created for his own glory. Now, the central message of the Christian gospel is that this is exactly what has happened. The divine author has entered into his own story. God has entered into our world. He has come personally in his son, Jesus Christ. But the appearance of God into the world was not at all what people expected. For that divine entrance was veiled. It was hidden. God Almighty, the the great ruler of heaven and earth, came incognito, as it were, into our midst. Not simply disguised at, but in fact becoming a mere baby. Lying in a bed of straw in a cattle feeding trough. If you weren't looking for him, you would never in a million years expect to find him there. And Jesus' life throughout was like that. From the crib to the cross. He didn't live the life of a superstar, celebrity, a conquering king. He was just a humble carpenter, a traveling rabbi, preaching the kingdom of God among the poor. He hardly looked like a Messiah, the savior of the world. He couldn't even save himself. He was God incognito, Deus absconditus, as they say in Latin, the hidden God, hidden from sight. A God seen only through the eyes of faith, not coming with magnificent displays of divine glory, but in humility and lowliness. He was there, all right. Men and women were staring God right in the face, but most didn't recognize him. And most didn't respond to him in repentance and faith. They remained in the dark. But for some, their eyes were opened and the light of Christ shone in their hearts. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. The little children, they were the meek, the humble, the broken, the sick who knew they needed a doctor. Those who knew themselves to be sinners in need of a savior. Those who cried out, Lord, have mercy upon me. Paul puts it this way. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And here you see is the mystery of the Christian gospel, which is a great stumbling block to many, especially to the Jews, even to this day. In the coming of Christ into the world, this day of the Lord, what the prophets spoke of, this day of the Lord has been split into two acts. In Act 1, the Lord has come in humility and loneliness, in mercy and grace. He's come to die on a cross for our sins, to rescue us from God's wrath. But there remains another act in this divine drama. This same Jesus will come again. The day of the Lord will arrive, this time in glory and in majesty. He will come as the holy judge of all the earth. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead 
was the dawn of that great day. And in a sense, we can already live in its light, which shines over the horizon of history. That's what Paul preached. And that's what Paul wants to remind the Thessalonian believers in our passage this morning. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is now the day of the Lord Jesus. That day when Christ comes again in glory to gather His people and to exercise judgment, separating the sheep from the goats, inviting some to join Him in His great messianic feast, and excluding others from His presence forever. This is the day toward which all of history is headed like a, like a locomotive steaming towards its final destination. Or perhaps like a, like a passenger train. With some passengers knowing where they're headed and looking forward to arriving with great joy. While others ride merrily along, giving no thought to the end. But who will look at one another with surprise and shock. When the train suddenly grinds to a halt. The day of the Lord. Maybe it's a slow train coming. As we judge such matters. But it's coming. And it's going to arrive right on time as far as God is concerned. When is it coming? When is it coming, this great day of the Lord? The time of this event has always been a source of great speculation. One heretical group of Christians in the second century were sure they knew when it would be. Maximilla, a prophetess who died in 179 A.D., declared, After me there is no more prophecy, but only the end of the world. In the Middle Ages, a monk named Joachim of Fiori predicted on the basis of the numbers in Daniel 11.3 and 12.6 that a new and final age of universal monastic contemplation, peace and rest would begin in the year 1260. During the Reformation, Martin Luther was sure that the end was just around the corner, though he did reprimand severely a fellow theologian for calculating that the world would end at 8 a.m. on the 19th of October in 1533. As you know, this sort of speculation continues today. I think of the recent attention given to Harold Camping's prediction that Christ would return back on May 21st. He was wrong again. How much time do we have left? When is he coming? Jesus said that before that day, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Things seem to be shaking up. When will it be? When will God finally make himself known for all the world to see? These are contemporary questions, but they're not just modern questions. For our passage this morning shows the concern that Christians of the first century had with these questions. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, there's irony in these words of Paul. He says, you know very well, you know with precise accuracy, or you know exactly all that can be known about the time of the future coming of Christ. If you know that the time of his coming is unknowable. Jesus himself had said so very clearly. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And Paul is saying here that day is as unpredictable as knowing when a thief will come and break into your house at night. I've never heard of a thief who announced beforehand the time of his arrival. Like a thief in the night. 
And Jesus himself had used that expression to describe his future coming. It's found in a number of places in the New Testament. And the Thessalonians had heard about this. They should have known what it meant, but perhaps they were troubled by those who insist on making these kinds of predictions. You know all you need to know and all you can know if you know that the time of the coming of the Lord can't be predicted. But if its time was unknowable, its nature its meaning certainly wasn't. And Paul was sure that the day of the Lord would certainly mean one thing to those who knew Christ and something else entirely for those who didn't. The coming of the day of the Lord may be unpredictable, he tells us, but its meaning for us need not be. For we who know Jesus Christ are not to live in the darkness, he said, but in the light. So I want us to first look to, at the, the warning that Paul gives us in verses 2 and 3. He says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, Peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now here, Paul is speaking of the day of the Lord from the perspective of the unbeliever. And for them, Paul says, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. Even while these people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like the unpredictable onset of a woman's labor pains. They'll be oblivious as to what is about to happen. They will be sure all is well. All is well. For you see, they have no sense of the impending accountability before God. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. Just so long as we're all tolerant of each other's divergent lifestyles, it will all turn out to be okay. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. They had no idea that they were going to be held accountable to God for the way they had lived. They had no idea that life would not always go on as it always had. No idea. And it came upon them as unexpectedly as last Tuesday's earthquake. Who saw that coming? And that was nothing. Nothing compared to the way the Lord will shake not only the earth, but the heavens themselves on that day. And I fear that there are many who, who live today with this kind of naive ignorance, which in the Lord's eyes is morally reprehensible. They say peace and safety, all is well, forgetting the one to whom they're accountable. Peace and safety, these are the words of the, of the false prophets of Israel. The words of those prophets who would not warn the people of their sin and the coming judgment of God. They lulled the people to sleep with their false words of comfort. But then suddenly, the invading armies of the north brought destruction upon the nation. And we in our day, we have our own false prophets giving divine sanction to the latest form of godless immorality, denying the reality of God's righteous judgments. But on the day of the Lord, the Lord himself will make it clear to us all that he is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. He is the one to whom we must answer for the way we've lived. And there are many for whom that day will come.
quite unexpectedly. And not only will it be unexpected, it will also be unwelcome. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Destruction. Now, that's a harsh word, but Paul uses even harsher language in his second letter to the Thessalonians. He writes there in chapter 1, verse 7, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. You know, people often cry for justice in this world. God, bring your justice on this world. I fear they do not know what they're asking for. For on that day when the Lord brings his justice into his world, he will pour out his wrath against everything that is contrary to his righteous and holy nature. As the prophet Malachi declares, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? That's why he'll come like a thief. He will destroy all the earthly treasures on which people have put their hope. They'll be wiped out, left empty. They'll be cut off from all God's gracious gifts. Only those treasures secured in heaven will survive that day. Those who have not loved him now, those who have refused to treat him as God, have not bowed before him and offered their lives to him in faith, they can hardly expect to welcome him then When he comes, all that remains, to quote the epistle to the Hebrews, is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. For unbelievers, the day of the Lord will be unexpected. It will be unwelcome. And third, Paul says the day of the Lord will be inescapable. Destruction will come upon them suddenly as a labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I mean, when a woman goes into labor, that's it. I mean, you can't put it off. You can't say, no, I'm not ready. Let's do it on Tuesday. No, it will happen. You will give birth or you will die trying. And this is what accountability means, doesn't it? Whether you will have to stand before God as your judge, that's not for you to decide. It will happen. You can count on it. You can't escape it. And on that day, the the sincerity of our beliefs about life and the world, that won't make any difference. All that will matter is the truth, the inescapable truth, that the God who created this world will come to call us to account for how we've responded to him. The day of the Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. To the unbeliever, it will be unexpected. It will be unwelcome. It will be inescapable. And again, quoting the epistle of the Hebrews, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How does the thought of this coming day of the Lord make you feel? Fearful? Apprehensive? Maybe it should. But it doesn't have to. For you see, there's another side to the story, a different approach. And Paul moves in verse 4 to a very sharp contrast. Verse 4, but you, speaking here to his brothers and sisters in the church in Thessalonica, but you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. 
You see, you've heard the good news. You've responded with your lives to the message of the gospel. You've come to know Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. So let's look again at this day of the Lord and see how it's different for you. First, though, the time of that day is unpredictable. For you, the coming of Christ will not be unexpected. In fact, it should be eagerly anticipated. But you, brothers, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Our eyes have been opened. We're no longer blind to God's purposes and plans. We're no longer wandering in the darkness of uh, the darkness of a world without God. The blazing light of Christ will, will bring uh, this light that Christ brings when He comes. Well, it, it's already begun to shine in our lives. We're sons of the day, sons of the night, the light. We should be alert. We should be wide awake to the presence of God in the world, in our lives. He is with us. His Spirit is in us. Christ is Lord. Though all the world around us may be blind to that fact. We're to live as children of light, walking in the light of Christ in all that we do. And we know that Christ will appear in glory. He's coming again. We should expect it. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night, he says. Either way, they're oblivious to the reality of God. And they will be caught unaware when he suddenly appears. But we're not to be like that. Verse 6, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Keep on your watch, he says. Stand like a soldier on guard duty. Equip yourself like a soldier too, he says. Verse 8, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This Christian trinity of values, faith, hope and love. This is what ought to characterize our lives as those who live in the light of the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ. We're to be constantly armed, he says, always ready. I remember... uh, um, a single youth pastor we once had here at the church named Ben. Some of you remember him. He was uh, house-sitting uh, for another family who went on vacation. And he wasn't sure exactly when they would come back. And I remember talking to Ben about this, and it necessitated a certain uh, adjustment in Ben's house-cleaning routine. He realized he couldn't simply leave all the dirty dishes until the last day. He had to live in a state of constant expectation. And I'm sure you see that this is part of the reason that the Lord has kept the time of his coming hidden from us. We would fool ourselves into thinking that we could just wait and tidy up our lives and get our house in order at the last minute. We must realize that our accountability in a sense is a constant thing. That's what watchfulness means. We live in a constant awareness of the impending appearance of Christ into this world. Now, it's sometimes said that all this talk about looking for the coming of Christ has a, has a detrimental effect on the life of the Christian. The comment uh, to be watchful is seen as a kind of uh, stargazing, standing around, looking up in the heavens, waiting for Jesus to return. In the meantime, being no good to anybody, making life on this side of Christ's coming almost frivolous. But I want you to see it couldn't be farther from the truth. 
Being watchful doesn't mean that we should sit out on a porch like a lonely dog pining away until our master returns. Being watchful means remembering our accountability before God. It means that we are to live with the certainty that he's coming and that we shall stand before him. And so we're to be like stewards entrusted with the master's estates. We're to be like financial managers entrusted with the master's money. We've got a job to do. And when he comes, we'll give an account of that. And so living with a sense of expectancy doesn't draw us away from our earthly responsibilities. It ought to make us even more faithful in those responsibilities. It was Lord Shaftesbury, the 19th century English social reformer, who worked tirelessly to improve conditions in the London slums, who said near the end of his life, I do not think in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Living in the light of Christ's coming is meant to make us faithful in this life. For what comes, wrote C.S. Lewis, is judgment. Happy are those whom he finds laboring in their vocation whether we're merely going out to feed the pigs or laying grand plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil, perhaps the curtain will fall. Those pigs will never, in fact, be fed. The great campaign against slavery or government tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory, no matter. You were at your post when the inspection came. Now, does that mean that what we do here in this life is insignificant? Does this idea of the coming of Christ somehow trivialize our earthly life? No, it's the opposite. The coming of Christ means that what happens here has immense significance. It has eternal significance, eternal meaning. History, human history has a purpose, a goal to which it is heading. And it will be transformed into all that God intends for it, you see. You talk about... Insignificance is those who talk about the universe as a cold and empty expanse of impersonal matter and energy stretching back billions and billions of years, going on for billions and billions more years. Those are the people who make life insignificant. It's those who say that this earth and all of human life is simply a a chance collection of atoms that have come together a mere instant in time and just as quickly will return to their eternal state of chaos. They're the ones who trivialize life. They make it insignificant. No, nothing gives more dignity and purpose to life right here and now than the prospect of the coming of our Lord. It matters. And for us who live in the light, this day of the Lord should not be unexpected. No, we should be ready. Nor should it be unwelcome. Throughout the New Testament, the coming of Christ is to be a joyous event for believers. But how is that possible? After all, as we've said, the day of the Lord will be a day when the righteousness of God will be revealed. His holiness will be known by all. He will punish sin. The sin of everyone who has not loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. The wrath of God will be poured out on any and everyone who has not kept the entire law. For he who is guilty at one point is guilty of the whole. 
As we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 13, see the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Or Joel 2.11, the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Are we to look forward to such a day? How can that be? Well, you see, we can look forward to such a day. Because those who are joined to Jesus Christ by faith, those who have come to him as their savior, for them it will not be a day of judgment, but a day of salvation. And look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say in Philippians 3, we eagerly await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or or the Apostle John can write, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can Paul say this? On what basis can this be a day of salvation for us? Is it because we've kept the law? Because we're holy and righteous in ourselves? Look closely at what Paul says in verse 10. God appointed us to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who died for us. It's a day of salvation because of the death of Christ. It's because he's taken away our sin. It's because he's quenched the righteous wrath of God against our sin. He is that perfect, holy all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And so through Him, we have forgiveness. We have a clean conscience, a clean standing before a holy God. And receiving that gracious gift, the death of God's Son for us, this day of the Lord is transformed from a day of dread into a day of delight. We need not fear the wrath of God. There is now no condemnation for those who have entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ. We can welcome that day. We no longer need to think of God in fear. Reverence, yes, but not fear. We've tasted His fatherly love, His perfect love, and that perfect love casts out our fear. And that's why, you see, to call the day of the Lord inescapable, though true, is hardly appropriate for the believer, you see, for why should we seek to escape our own rescue? Why should we run from such a loving Savior, one who gave his life on a cross for us? A far better word to describe the day of the Lord for the believer is inseparable. For his coming means that we will be forever joined with him. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead or alive when he comes, we may live together with him. And for those who know him, there could be no grander goal in all of life. The day of the Lord. So how much time do we have left? One thing I know is that I don't know. It may be soon or it may not be. Now, not that I want to emulate the Book of Common Prayer, which by an act of Parliament in 1752 gives directions for calculating the dates of the church calendar for the next 6,000 years. 
Uh, you have to question how much the members of Parliament were living in eager anticipation of Christ's coming. But, but whenever it is, we must live each day with the conviction that we will be held accountable for our faithfulness to what God commands. And we must live each day with an eager hope that when he comes, he will receive us to himself. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Blessed will be that servant whose master finds him living faithfully when he returns. We must live each day clinging to the cross, which alone is our salvation. You're all sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You see, by faith, we have already seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. His light has shined upon us. And we should be looking with eager expectation for that glory to be revealed to the whole world. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul writes, but you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So when will that day come? It's unpredictable. It's not in our hands. But what is in our hands, what is predictable, is what it will mean for you when it comes. Will he come to you in judgment or with salvation? Will his coming be like that of a thief, destroying all that you've built your life upon? Or will his coming be like that of a friend, coming to to be with you, to take you home, to be with himself? Are you living with a sense of readiness, a sense of responsibility? See, this isn't a matter of mere speculation or prediction. This is a matter that calls for decision. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Paul writes in Romans 13, 12. The day of your redemption is nearer now than when you first believed. And the gospel's promise of redemption will be fulfilled when Christ comes again in glory. You see, this hope of the final consummation of what was begun in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's essential. As one writer put it, faith in Jesus, faith in his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave without the expectation of his return is a check that is never cashed, a promise that is not made in earnest. A faith in Christ without the expectation of a return is like a flight of stairs that leads nowhere, but ends in the void. But Jesus is coming again. And until then, we must continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray in those words preserved in the original Aramaic language of the first Jewish Christians, Maranatha. Come, O Lord, come. Let's pray. Lord God, by opening our eyes to see something of the glory of Christ in his cross and his resurrection, you have made us children of the light, 
children of the day. May we not live in darkness. May we look with joyous hope toward the coming of that great day. When Jesus Christ will be revealed, we'll all will see him in all his glory. And he will receive all the honor that is his due. Oh Lord, give us an expectant hope for that great day. And may we live in the light of it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.